Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. There's also a widget you can get for the Jazz Session if you go to AllAboutJazz.com and scroll down to the bottom of any page. You'll see a little box there with uh, the latest Jazz Session episode uh, kind of advertised inside it. And if you click on that box, it'll take you to a page for that episode, which also lists the most recent episodes at the bottom. And then up in the right-hand corner, I believe it is, there's something like Get the Code or something like that. And if you just take that and paste it into your website, you can have that little box display on your website. And if you do that, please let me know uh, at jason at thejazzsession.com because I will uh, talk about your website in an upcoming newsletter, which I send out to uh, all the subscribers both on Facebook and on my email list each Monday morning. By the way, if you want to get that newsletter, it's very easy. Either join the Jazz Sessions Facebook group or sign up for the mailing list, and you'll find links to both of those things at thejazzsession.com. I would do one or the other, but not both, probably. And each Monday morning, you'll get a copy of uh, the newsletter, which tells you who's on the show that week and the following week, and uh, gives you some other notes about things that may be of interest to you uh, from the jazz world. Speaking of things you can do online, one of them is visit the Brilliant Corners blog, which you'll find linked at thejazzsession.com. That's uh, run by Chris Rich, uh, who's been a good friend to this show. And uh, on that blog, one of the regular contributors is a guy named Matt Lavelle, who plays trumpet and bass clarinet. And I first really learned about Matt from that blog and reading uh, his thoughts on uh, jazz past and present. And he's also released a number of albums as a leader and appeared uh, as a sideman on a number of albums as well. Uh, his most recent record, uh, as far as I know, is the uh, album The Manifestation Drama, which is uh, excellent. I highly recommend it to you. And uh, one of my favorite tunes on it is this one called Synesthesia.
My guest is trumpeter and bass clarinetist Matt Lavelle. Matt has released a number of albums under his own name and also appeared uh, as a sideman on a number of recordings. And many of you may be familiar with Matt from the Brilliant Corners blog, where he's a frequent contributor writing about the life of a musician and also uh, the lives of musicians both here and gone. And it's my pleasure to welcome Matt to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued and interested in what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me, me too. Um, I want to start right out and say that, uh, I mean, I, I came to know that you existed through uh, the Brilliant Corners uh, blog, Chris Rich's blog, where you're a regular mm-hmm. writer. And uh, one of the things that, that struck me right from the beginning was the what seems to be a, a very intensely spiritual connection that you have to the act of playing music. And I hope maybe you could start off by by talking a little bit about that and when when music for you became something that intense in your in your life. Well, the first thing that I that comes to mind in regards to that is uh, it just takes me right to Coltrane when I heard uh, Ohm. His his uh, I had Ohm on cassette, which is pretty unusual. Yeah, I would and, say so. Uh, that was really the first. Uh, I would say out. I don't even. I don't. Ohm is Ohm is even not necessarily jazz, but I, I had never heard anything like that before. At the at the time, I was uh, immersed in uh, trying to be a, really like a swing player. I was. Uh, I came up with somebody from the swing era. This guy named uh, Sir Hildred Humphreys. So. My entire early foundation was, you know, like uh, Sweet Georgia Brown and stuff like that. And uh, I got a Col- you know, and then I got a Coltrane record. I thought it was going to be like uh, Giant Steps and whatnot. And then uh, I just didn't know what to do with the music on home. And uh, it, it had a spiritual impact on me, but at the time I didn't know what I had experienced, you know. I mean, even today, that 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 particular recording is 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 over the top. I mean, one of the most extreme things Coltrane ever did. But that's that's where the whole thing really began. And so, how did you did you kind of right away start to try to incorporate this whole new approach to playing? Was it something that you kind of slowly moved your way into? Because you've, I mean, you've obviously you've taken a pretty large step since. Uh, the more swing-oriented days to what you're you're doing now. So was that a, a gradual yeah. process for you? Was it? Did you drop one and move to the other? How did it work for you, Matt? Well, I've I've always I've always actually had a problem trying to integrate the two, and that that has caused me problems over the years. I I really didn't didn't feel like I could, I could just start playing free and uh, you know like hardcore like that. I was still compelled to try to take myself through the traditional route and try to learn, you know, straight ahead playing as well as I could. But I was never the best straight ahead player. I, I I was always trying to reach for something that really wouldn't fit in the context of, of straight ahead playing. You know? I, I I gradually, you know, worked my way through uh straight ahead playing but was never was never entirely comfortable with it. But ironically you know, many years, I mean, probably almost 15, 20 years later, when I, I, I'm, I'm a lot better at straight-ahead playing after having spent a lot of time 
playing free, you know. What, what do you I, think that I'm, is? I'm, I'm sorry, man. Go ahead. I uh, mean, to, no, that's fine. Why do you think that is? What? How? How did one impact the other? It seemed like the the music that comes out of me never really just leave, you know, lined up with the whole thing, with, with the whole chord changes and and the rules of or the so-called rules of of straight ahead playing. You know, I always heard outside of that, and uh, I was always compelled. Even in even in the beginning, I used to get in trouble at uh, at Smalls a lot. This this jam session in uh, New York City because I I, I would I love to just take the harmony outside of of where we're at, you know, and, and play dissonance and uh, and not necessarily concerned with resolving it. Which uh, you know, for for some guys that's sacrilege, you know. So some guys might even consider that, you know, well, this guy can't play. But it, for me, it was a conscious decision to do stuff like that. But there, there were some people during, you know, I used to cross paths with people who could actually get with what I was trying to do. You know, if 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 you look at uh, Miles, you know, Miles' great band of the 60s with uh, Wayne and, uh, you know, Herbie and and, uh, and Tony, you know, they, 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 had, they had gotten into that. Uh, that kind of thing where they could really just play what they wanted to, and, you know, improvise harmony almost on the spot. <laughs> you know, it, it took me years of, uh, I, I never really figured it out until I started studying with Ornette. And then that really straightened the whole thing out. I definitely want to talk um, about your meeting, Ornette, but I want to go back uh, to Sir Hildred Humphreys for a minute, and, and would you just tell folks who don't know uh, about him who he was and, and how you ended up studying with him? Yeah, Hildred, Hildred was, was, uh, he, was a sac- he was part of a brothers, a, a jazz brothers team, the, the Humphreys brothers, which was uh, him and his brother Frank. Frank was a trumpet player. And these guys were straight up swing era. I mean, he he played with uh, Billy Holiday for a while. He was uh, he was with Basie for a while, and uh, Roy Eldridge and all that. And he was one of those guys that got tired of the road, 
that kind of cost him a little bit, you could say career-wise. You know, early on, his uh, his wife told him, uh, you know, you got to choose either the road or me. So he got, you know, he came off the road, and uh, that was pretty much it. I mean, so he spent probably like, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years as, as part of that, part of the music of that time. But after that, he pretty much just moved to uh, suburbia. And, uh, I mean, he continued to play for the rest of his life, but he was pretty much off the radar of, uh, of, of most people, both him, him and Frank. And then, uh, I went to high school in, uh, in Nyack, New York. That's where Hildred lived through the, you know, through the jazz program at the school. I, I, I met him and then, uh, actually, you know, pursued a friendship with him after high school to, uh, you know, to learn the, you know, the tools of the trade. Did you know even then, Matt, when you were in high school, that, that music was more to you than just, you know, something fun to do? No, at that time I didn't know anything, man. I, I didn't, uh, I wanted to play, but I was just a leap of faith. I mean, but I, I did have, a, I did have a spirit, you know, a connection to the spirituality behind it. Even then, uh, one time, uh, uh, Hildred and I were playing at a church and, uh, he's, I'm, I'm trying to remember what he said. He, uh, he did a spiritual and, uh, he didn't play. He sang it. And, uh, I don't, I don't remember what it was, but, uh, I'll never forget the, uh, looking in the front row and just seeing people crying. I mean, people were like, you know, and it was in a church, <laughs> you know, it wasn't about, you know, religion or anything like that. He he uh, he had just reached people with you know with the feeling behind the whole thing. You know, and, and and him being a jazz musician, that was that was a clue into the whole thing. You know, like there, there's an Albert Eiler album called uh, Going Home, where he just uh, he just plays all all spirituals, and he does he hardly even solos. <laughs> it's all like ballads and stuff. You know. That's that's the kind of when I find stuff like that, it kind of unifies the entire thing, from early or pre-jazz all the way to the end. Not that not that it's over, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hope not. Thank <laughs> you. 
did you first go to uh, to New York City, kind of with the intention of of staying there for a while and and trying to make your way in the music? Uh, it wasn't that long after that. It was uh, like '89 or or '90, and uh, but it wasn't really a choice. It was circumstance. It was uh, I was in a situation where uh, I didn't have anywhere to go, and I was almost out of money. So I. Uh, I ended up at the Jersey City YMCA, which was, uh, you know, the, the path train could take you to the village and uh, in a pretty short amount of time. So I found myself uh, down in the city probably a little bit before I was really ready to actually make that move. But that didn't stop me. I went right. I, I just started going to the jam sessions and got into it right away. And you were playing trumpet exclusively then? Oh yeah, that's all I, all I played then was trumpet, yep. As I mentioned when I when I introduced you, you uh you play the the very common double of trumpet and bass clarinet, I think. I <laughs> right. I, just, I can't even count the number of trumpet bass clarinet doubles there are these right. days. They're everywhere. Uh <laughs> so I mean, I, I'm going to ask you some questions to which I think I know the answer, uh, to only because I've read a lot of what you've written, but I want everybody else to know. Will you talk about uh, when the bass clarinet started calling your name and uh, and how you knew that you needed to, to master that difficult instrument, too? Sure. Well, you know, the trumpet trumpet is a hard instrument, man, when... Uh, and the real... The, I was just thinking about this the other day. The, the main difference between the two of them is is... The air control on the trumpet is really, really way more challenging than, than really any reed instrument. You know, on a, on a reed instrument, you hit the octave key and you can just play in the upper register. <laughs> but on the trumpet, man, uh, you gotta work even when you just start to play in the middle of the, of the horn. So that, that's the technical thing. But the other thing was, is I, I always heard things that were just beyond the trumpet. You know, as much as I love the trumpet, I mean, I'm probably I'm a better trumpet player now than I've I've ever been. But there's there's things that the trumpet just can't do that I hear that I I hear and that I feel, especially the real vocal uh, capacity that the bass clarinet can 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 reach. You know, and that that goes right back to the Mingus record with uh, Eric Dolphy and the Mingus, the duet they did uh, where uh, Eric's just like, you know doing this unbelievable uh like vocal approach in the in the you know in the upper half of the of the instrument. And the other thing is the bass clarinet range just was way below the trumpet. And I I always heard music below the natural range of the trumpet. So the bass clarinet's actually a B flat instrument. It's almost uh it's almost a natural extension the sound is so different, you know. The uh, finding an alto trumpet or or a bass trumpet just wasn't. That's just, you know, I was. It's just a route that I wasn't going to try to go. I mean, alto trumpets are practically impossible to find anyway. I'm interested in that because I forget who I was talking to. I think it was pro- I think it was Joe Morris who plays both guitar and bass, and I think I asked him the same question about. Um, yeah. What a lot of people hear naturally in one particular register, and uh, and they feel most comfortable kind of with instruments that operate in that register. And so, I mean, you spent 
like all of your formative years and and you know well into your kind of adult professional years playing only the trumpet and hearing all this music that was much lower were you uh, did you think your trumpet sound was affected by the fact that you were hearing that way were you were you trying to do things with the trumpet that as it turned out it just really wasn't suited to do well well i have to say one of the things i'm really proud proud of in my trumpet playing is my command in the in the lower register, like the bottom of the trumpet, I can like really get down down there. I mean, I I I hear at the very bottom of the trumpet because that's where I go trying to go even lower. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean, I'm not I'm not I'm not the first person to do that. But uh, Rafe Malik could get down there with a huge sound, and uh, Miles used to go down there. Uh, I've heard Wynton Marsalis go down there. But I, I I tend to go down there and stay down there, which is, you know, p- part of the influence of of Eric Dolphy. You know, Eric would go into unconventional registers, and just dance. You know, and uh, it it definitely it, it. But what you just said is absolutely right. I I tend to hear at the bottom of the trumpet, and and when I go to the upper range of the trumpet, it's almost like a completely different approach. that really strikes me about you and that I think is even more pronounced talking to you, which is the first time we've ever actually spoken, um, although we've, we've communicated by email and, and I've read a lot of your stuff. But listening to you talk, you and I are only three years apart in age, and yet the way you talk, you sound like you have such a, a real and immediate connection to the music that came before you. I mean, you, you kind of talk about that music almost as if you'd been there, which obviously is impossible. So um, yeah. I'm... I don't know. I'm just. I'm interested. I guess in in where you think that comes from. You you sound just incredibly connected to the that kind of long branch of history that goes back before you. Yeah, that that's kind of hard for me to explain. But I've I've always been able to strike up a, a real rapport with with uh, the people that I know. You know, from that time and even and even before. It, it's it's. I mean, you could say that I'm an old soul. You could say that, uh, you know, I 
you could say I have I have the son in the third house, which is uh, you know the third house is communication, and that's where my son is. So that at my core, that's what I actually am. The communication is you know basically what I actually why I exist. <laughs> it's like it's like when I hang out with Giuseppe Logan or or Ornette Coleman. It's like. I couldn't explain why I'm, I'm like friends with them like I'm their own age. You know, like I talk to them like, you know, like I'm their buddy in school when the reality is it's not like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, um, I think one of the things that makes that stand out is that actually there, my personal opinion of our culture in this country is that we, we lack a real respect for the people who came before us. I mean, I lived in Japan for, for a while and um, several years and and really was struck by how differently and with how much more respect the elderly are treated than they than they are here. And it sounds yeah. like you just have kind of a natural affinity for people older than you, that uh, you don't draw that artificial barrier, it sounds like, to hear you talk. No, I, 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 I truly have a respect thing, too. I mean, I've had to find a balance, too, because... Some, I, I feel some guys take you can take the respect too far, you know. But uh, I, I really do have a genuine respect. But it's more I'm really coming more like on the humanity perspective though than the way some other people go. Like like with Giuseppe Logan, there's a you know Giuseppe's got a whole story unto himself, but we. I was I was playing with him one day and these Japanese guys came by and they showed him a respect that 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 really you know I I've never seen this level of respect. <laughs> I mean they were like talk, they were like looking at Giuseppe like he was Jesus. And uh you know I I was I was I've never been to Japan but I was blown away by that. Giuseppe didn't even really realize how much respect was uh was was being given to him but uh you know so I, I guess i guess everybody has their own relationship with that but you could say that a lot of people my age and especially the people younger than me and i'm, I'm only gonna be 40 in like a couple of weeks but i, I definitely sense a, a a general lack of respect of of the older guys or they're just not into it they're just they're just we're gonna do a lot of the younger people are gonna they're gonna do their thing it's today and and you know, forget about all that. But, and the other thing is, going a little bit deeper is, time is running out for our actual chance to be connected to these guys. You know, I mean, we gotta we gotta keep it real, man. You know, and, and, and say 20 years from now, the guys that you know, the Sonny Rollins. I mean, not to be a forecaster of doom, but it's quite possible that Ornette and Sonny Rollins and Roy Haynes and Clark Terry that those guys are not gonna be around. <laughs> Thank you. 
so two people we definitely need to talk about are uh, Ornette Coleman and Giuseppe Logan, and I guess we'll take them in chronological order. Can you talk about uh, how you met Ornette? Yep, that's uh, that's uh, it's through a photographer uh, named John Rogers, who's uh, he's he's someone that you'll definitely see on the on the jazz scene in New York at some point. And uh, I was friends with John. He just I, out of the blue one day, he just called me up and said, "Hey, I'm going up there. You want to go?" <laughs> so uh, I was like, "Yeah, of course." So uh, once I went up there. I basically stepped into another world. Up that, there, meaning uh, to Ornette's house. Yeah, or- Ornette. As soon as you get off the elevator, man, it's you're 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 entering pretty much the planet Ornette. <laughs> it's his <laughs> world, <laughs> and uh, and it it's you know it's almost it's almost separate from reality in in uh, in many ways, and. Uh, and like like we were just talking earlier, somehow I was able to really strike up a a really good rapport with him. And uh, I mean, he he has an open door. You know, he's he's extraordinarily open. You know, almost anybody can can uh, if they can get to that point where someone can bring you up there or you get his phone number or whatever. He he's extre- he's extremely open to every you know all people. I mean, anybody can come in his house, and he'll treat them with, and 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 now we come back to respect again. Ornette actually will treat you with this like southern hospitality and a level of respect that you know can also, in in coming from that side of the whole thing, can blow you away too. I mean, I mean, the first time I walked in there, I thought my head was going to explode just because I was actually standing there talking to him because. That for me personally, that was really over the top because you know, guys like Coltrane and uh, and you know Albert Eiler and, and, and Eric Dolphy, they're almost like myths or legends. <laughs> you know, we have we have their music, but to actually know them personally, impossible. You know, I train train left before I was even born. So, but here I was actually talking to somebody from that. You know, to, to one of the main guys. You know, I mean, just just that, just just being able to stand there and talk to him, uh, you know, blew my mind. But uh, once I got over that, we could really like really get down and start really talking about heavy stuff. And uh, that that was that was my thing with Arnett. That at first it was more about philosophy and uh, like metaphysics before we got into music. You know, like we just got into really heavy discussions about all kinds of stuff. And you you continued that over the next I mean you continued that up to today right that that relationship yeah yeah well 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 eventually the music side started to to be explored and then that's when uh, that's that's when for me I was given an extraordinary gift because uh, it turns out that there's a, there's a lot of areas that I needed to work on uh, at that time I still I mean I still do but. Almost instantly, he was able to figure out the problems that I had in my own playing, and uh, and he was and he didn't hold back in, in pointing them out and being you know very honest about what the problems were and how to solve them. So anybody that really any musician that comes through there, and there's there's a lot of musicians that have that have that have been to his house, 
he, he's pretty much uh, if 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 you're gonna get into music, he can almost instantly hear where you're at and and what you do, and then he's gonna try to figure out where you are in relationship to music itself. So ba basically, he'll try to apply harmonics to you, you know. And at first, he has to almost like do a diagnosis <laughs> to see what you know what can be applied, why, and, and how, you know. So he gave me some things to work on that took me a couple, took me years to really process. And, and it was stuff that I had been avoiding, you know, for years and years. And, and it, was, uh, it was really necessary to, to go through that. And uh, that's, it, it really had a huge impact on me because it really made my own music start to make sense to me. <laughs> Matt, let me ask you one thing about about talking with Ornette, uh, which is something I've never done. But I've uh, whenever I read an interview with him, I find that it's actually very difficult for me to understand what it is he's saying. I mean, he he speaks the same language that I do, but he uses the words differently, and he kind of yeah. arranges them differently. Um, and and words that mean one thing to me don't seem to mean the same thing the way he uses them. So um, I, I just wonder, what's it actually like to have a conversation. I mean, just to be like be sitting on the couch and talking to Ornette or or however it is that it happens. What what is that like? It's it's re for me. It's really really intense because it can be very confrontational because he'll bring things up and and just give the ball to you really and, and look for you to have a, a a real you know a real response on something that could be really heavy and like for me personally. You gotta be really focused and you gotta really be, you gotta be really focused but also really open at the same time to try to get at what he's really talking about. You know? Because it's, there's, there's riddles. There, there's, there's a lot of like puzzles and riddles that he, that he uses cryptically, but there's always a reason behind them because when you get to the answer, there's a, there's a lesson in the answer and he tends to talk like that. And for me, the real challenge is to not just understand and be able to flow, but to be able to come back with something meaningful and say something to him that make that you know that that flips the whole thing around, or or try to get him to actually explain it or go even deeper. I mean, that's one of the things that I love to do is to is to is to listen to what he's saying, you know, figure it out. And then try to even take it to the next level. Because a lot of times people, uh, when they're talking to them, a lot of people just don't know what to do. They just like, a lot of people just listen. Some people pretend to understand, but they really don't. <laughs> you know? And, uh, some people just agree with them because they're not, they're not sure what else to do. You know? So it can be, it can be very challenging. And, and, and it gets even more challenging when you actually get out the horns and start playing. And then he stops and starts talking about that. <laughs> <laughs>
in recent years, it seems like there's been uh, several stories, like Henry Grimes and Sonny Simmons, of guys who people kind of thought were dead and turned out to not be dead, and not only not to be dead, but to still be able to you know, yeah. play their instruments at an incredible level. And uh, the most recent of those stories, at least that I'm aware of, is uh, the story of Giuseppe Logan and the person, as far as I can tell, who seems to be responsible for uh, him coming back into the into the recording world and into the, the public eye uh, is you. And so I thought maybe you could tell folks who Giuseppe was and who he is now and, and how you uh, you came to know him. Well, Gi- Giuseppe is a real trip, man. He, he, he's got to be one of the most original uh, people I've ever met. He's uh, And he's tenacious. He, he's a fighter. I mean, uh, in the 60s, he, he, before he made his two records for ESP, and uh, he appeared on Morning Impulse, or he appeared on a Roswell record, too. But uh, before that, man, he was just a student. He, he went to New England Conservatory, and he was very uh, up and down, uh, he wasn't even like an out guy or an avant-garde jazz musician. He was just someone who wanted to learn how to play jazz, <laughs> you know. You know, he eventually hit New York and became part of the, uh, you know, the 60s heyday. I think it was 65 when he made his ESP record. And uh, then there's a, the, he made another one called More Giuseppe Logan that's really hard to find. Supposedly it's going to be, someone's going to come, uh, somebody's going to put it out at some point. But uh, at Somewhere around 66, 67, uh, there's a lot of different versions of what took place. Um, his son believes he got a, a, a hit of bad acid at a, actually at a, re, a record release party, at, at, at an ESP record release party. But at some point, uh, he started, you know, dealing with some of the darker sides of life and, uh, musician life. And, uh, it got really bad for him. Bad enough that uh, his wife took his son, and they split. And eventually, he ended up on the street. I mean, and between uh, then and now, he was either literally on the street, or at times he was in mental homes, and uh, you know, taken about as far away from his music as he as he possibly could be. I mean, before that took place, he was a real part of that scene. I mean, he had. He had played with Train. He played with Coltrane. He played with Rosano and Kirk. He even played with Dizzy Gillespie at one point. Uh, you know, he was part of that scene. And uh, I believe Albert Eiler and him crossed paths too. But, uh, you know, he had to deal with the uh, that part of his life that, uh, you know, took him away from his music. And, uh, and, and like we do in jazz, you know, we assume that he was gone. He, even his... Even his people from back then thought he was gone. I, I, I think Milford Graves and uh, some other guys were like they assumed that he was that he was dead. <laughs> so, so I was uh, I was working at Sam Ash a couple of years ago, and this, I mean, Sam Ash in, in in Times Square, we deal with a lot of street people and a lot of uh, you know guys that play on the street. So I'm 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 used to dealing with. Uh, for people who don't know, I'm just going to say that's a music store for folks who aren't. Yeah, from yeah, New York. yeah, yeah. So I, I'm I'm used to dealing with with street folks who might survive by playing music or whatever. So so when this grizzly old guy came in with this beat up alto and asked for uh, he asked to buy one reed. He wanted to buy one 
number one Rico Reed, which is the the cheapest. <laughs> you know, I mean, you got to be really on the edge if you're going to come in and ask for one Rico Reed, and the strength is number one. <laughs> you know, but at that point, it's almost like something mystical happened because I've never seen a picture of Giuseppe Logan, but uh, it's 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 almost uh, like uh, an act of uh, mysticism, where you could say. Uh, a psychic impression, but uh, Giuseppe's name was just placed into my head, and I asked him, I said, hey, man, are you Giuseppe Logan? And uh turns out it was him. <laughs> and the first thing he said was, uh, he said, that's right, I'm Giuseppe Logan, and I'm here to play. He goes, I'm going to go out playing. I'm going to go out playing. That was his, uh... so I was like, wait a minute. So, So what I did was, I was like, okay, this could be another one of those Henry Grimes situations. So the Vision Festival was getting ready to start uh, in a week or two. So I told him, I said, look, man, I, I asked him for a phone number. He was just living, he was completely homeless and living on the street. So I, I took a piece of paper. I said, all I could really do, he didn't have any way, any contact information. So I said, look, man. I, re- I wrote down the words William Parker on a piece of paper, and I said, uh, "I said, man," and I wrote down and I gave him a Vision Festival uh, program. I said, "Man, go down to this festival next week." I said, "Walk up to anybody and just tell them my name is Giuseppe Logan, and I need to talk to William Parker." <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I heard he was—I didn't see him at the festival, but I heard he was there. And then he used to come into the store uh, every couple of days. So when, it's actually, when I saw him, when I saw that I was actually going to see him more than once or twice, you know, I figured, all right, maybe we can actually, you know, maybe I can actually help this guy out, you know. If, but the problem with Giuseppe has always been finding him and uh, communicating with him. Because when someone's on the street with no phone, I mean, this is someone that was used to pay phones maybe, but, you know, cell phones, that's... <laughs> To him, that's like, you know, what the hell, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, so the only way we could communicate was when he came in to Sam Nash. So, but through that, I was able to set up some, uh, some rehearsals and, uh, you know, just try to get something going. And then, uh, at some point, ESP, the, the new ESP, which means, because ESP has been kind of revitalized by, by uh, Tom Abs and uh, Bernard Stolman and, and those guys. You know, eventually ESP got wind of it that he had indeed resurfaced and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to hit, they wanted him to play when, uh, when he felt that he was ready. So he, at this point he was still homeless and, uh, he still had a lot of work to do to, to, to get his chops back. And he was playing in the, he was playing in Tompkins Square Park during the day. Or sometimes 34th Street at the Arch. That's the other place I used to find him was the R train at uh, 34th Street. So it took us a while, but uh, eventually we were able to book that, that concert at the Bowery Poetry Club. And then once that happened, that's, that's what really started to get the ball rolling a little bit. And uh, the editor from Signal to Noise got wind of the whole thing. And he flew in from Texas to, to like, document and do the story. So, and then uh, and that was a pretty big event. I mean, he wasn't, he definitely wasn't at full strength. But uh, it was a double bill with uh, Gunter Hampel, and the place was packed. So, by playing that concert, he had, he had officially 
you know, let everybody know that, that he had returned, so to speak. So ever since then, uh, the next, you know, the next step was really to get him a place to live, which was, that was the real, the real perplexing, uh, paradox of the whole thing. Like after the concert, everybody's going home and I'm like, where are you going, man? And he was, he was, he was, he was going to go to find a bench and go sleep on some bench somewhere. <laughs> I was like, come on, man. I mean, it was still that bad. He was, he was getting ready to just go sleep on a bench and it was like 27 degrees outside. <laughs> so eventually the Salvation Army stepped in and got him a room. So once he got the room, that really helped him out because that he, he needed to, to get that kind of stability just to be able to focus on anything. Once he got, once he got that room, that kind of like his energy kind of changed a little bit and he was able to step outside of that, uh, survival mode. And he, then he started talking record, making a record. But ESP was, was, wasn't really feeling it. They didn't, ESP was, was, you know, putting up a lot of red tape. So I started putting the word out trying to see if somebody, if some label would step up, and nobody would. So I, I you know, I, I talked to the guys that I know, and I asked for some advice from some, some of the record people I do know, and uh, they told me the word was that he, was, that he couldn't play anymore, that he was finished and all this stuff. So I, I knew that wasn't true. So it, I, I reached out to the editor of Signal to Noise again, uh, Pete Gershon, and eventually we connected to this guy, Josh Rosenthal, at uh, Tompkins Square Records. And then uh, Josh stepped up and, uh, you know, he, he made the record happen. You know, he, uh, he made it possible. And uh, now the record came out, like, last month. So, and he's getting stronger. It, it's, it's, what's really interesting is that he's, he's, as strong now, he's stronger now than he was uh, when he made his records in the 60s. So now we're getting to find out where he would have gone had he kept, had he been able to keep going back then, you know? And, uh, I mean, he practices, his, his, I mean, he's talking about a guy that's 75 years old, but, uh, he just practices nonstop and he's trying to get to the core of what his music is really all about. And, and the other thing that's a trip is that his, his take on, on jazz itself is pretty unique, you know? He has a different spin on the whole thing, but he himself is connected even to the to the earlier guys and the later guys at the same time. That's one of the reasons I'm I'm uh, I connect with him so well because I'm I'm I'm, out, I'm always out there on this trip that that all of jazz is really the same thing from from Dixieland to to post Albert that it's real. There, there's things that unite all of it, and Giuseppe kind of proves that in a way on the record. You know, he like. He sings this ballad on the record called, uh, Love Me Tonight, which, you know, I mean, this could have been something from, from the twenties, you know, but he, but he plays piano on it in, in a way that is, uh, you know, like something from 19, something that Dave Burrell might play from like late sixties or early seventies. So he kind of like brings everything together, you know. So he's, uh, you know, he does, by his own admission, he, he's always saying that he thinks he only has a couple years left. So he's just trying to, you know, he's just trying to, to, to keep going. But it's a, it's an, and it's a real par, an extreme paradox between the two, you know, Ornette Coleman, Giuseppe Logan. I mean, both alto players, you know, who went very different directions and lived very different lives, <laughs> you know. And for me, it's a real trip to, to actually 
be able to know both of them. Such extreme, you know, different directions of really of, you know, coming out of the same continuum, you know. But I asked Giuseppe if I wanted, if he wanted to go up there to see on that, and he just said, he said, rich man, poor man, you know, what would we talk about? So I felt kind of bad and just dropped the subject, you know. But at some point I might try to actually get them together because Ornette remembered Giuseppe and uh, was glad to hear that he was doing well. You know, he, he was uh, – Ornette was, was happy that uh, that he had indeed resurfaced. Well, it's a, it's a really amazing story. I thank you for uh, for sharing it with us. My guest is Matt Lavelle. He plays trumpet and bass clarinet, and uh, you can hear him on a number of records, including the Manifestation drama, which I highly recommend. And it's been a, a real pleasure uh, talking to you, Matt. I thank you for coming on the show. Hey, pleasure's all mine, man. I, I appreciate the uh, the chance to speak about what both of us love. <laughs> That's absolutely right. <laughs> That's music from trumpeter and bass clarinetist Matt Lavelle. And uh, in addition to his music, you can also find him at the Brilliant Corners blog, which is linked at thejazzsession.com. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by allaboutjazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for recording the theme music to this show. You'll find them online at respectsextet.com. And thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.